Welcome to the Team Peds Talks focused on child and adolescent mental health, brought to you by the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, where we are experts in pediatrics and advocates for children. Thank you for joining us for our episode. This series of podcasts will have important conversations with pediatric healthcare providers who are working to equip families to respond to mental health concerns emerging in the COVID-19 pandemic. I am your host, Jessica Peck, NAPNAP's Executive Board President. I am a pediatric clinician, a professor at Baylor University, anti-trafficking advocate, and most importantly, mother of four. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to this episode of Team Peds Talks. I'm your host, Jessica Peck, President of the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners. We have got a fantastic show for you today. We are going to talk all things cyberbullying. We're probably going to give you some terms you've never heard of before, like outing and trickery and catfishing and all of these things that parents and pediatric care providers everywhere are trying to keep up in this digital world that is now the norm for our teens, for our digital natives. We have an incredible guest for you today who has expertise in this topic. We have um, Dr. Malvina Brandall. She is an assistant professor at Ohio University School of Nursing and very proud of her affiliation there, wanted me to be sure to say that. So a shout out to all of the students and faculty at Ohio University. Mel received her PhD at the University of North Dakota in 2016. And her research and professional interests are really primarily focused on cyberbullying and bullying among adolescents adolescent violence and risky behavior. And she has published about this, about how do teens end violent dating relationships and school-based risk factors associated with electronic and at-school bullying and all things uh, cyberbullying. And she ended up doing her doctoral dissertation on this topic, which is what we're going to talk to her about today. Now, I have to tell you that uh, she just published with one of her colleagues an article in the Journal of Pediatric Healthcare. It is in the, um, it is in the January and February issue of 2021 called Caring for the Digital Generation, Understanding Electronic Aggression. And I have to tell you all, this was my president's choice of that issue because I think this is so now, this is so needed for parents that are hungry for information about this. Pediatric care providers are hungry for information about this because we know this is what our teens are facing. So that is a pretty big sell that I think that we are gonna live up to that, uh, to, all of the hype there. And Mel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being on Team Pete's Talks. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Peck. I'm really excited to be here. And it's going to be Jessica, because we're just going to have a friendly little chat here with, you know, a few thousand of our closest friends listening in. So thanks for joining us. If you're listening out there, we're talking to um, Dr. Melvina Brandall. And Mel, tell me about how you, I always love to hear people's stories. So how did you get interested in this? Obviously, you published about this. Doing your dissertation, you committed a significant portion of your life to this work. How did this all start for you? Um, I get asked that quite a bit, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the answer is, but I believe that somewhere during the, the PhD program, I was taking a vulnerable populations class. Uh, at the same time, I was taking a qualitative methods class. Um, during that time, 
I think my daughter would have been around 13 or 14. And she was experiencing um, what looking back now, we had originally considered it cyberbullying, but really what it was at the time was trolling. And she was experiencing that with some of her online accounts that she had. I think she ran some fan pages um, for some uh, social media celebrities that she uh, enjoyed following and was experiencing some of that there. And I think with my own technology skills and, and probably knowing a little bit more about social media and technology than, um, than a lot of parents do, it, it just kind of triggered um, an interest in me to be able to be aware of what was going on with her and how I could teach her to respond well to that and how hopefully she would then be able to talk to her friends about how to respond to those things also. And, and I think that's kind of um, what triggered it. Uh, and, and it just kind of became a passion um, from then on once I started talking to uh, her friends and some other young people hearing what they had to say. Well, that's an amazing story and really very common, you know, what I hear, because a lot of times as pediatric care providers, we are inspired by our own children in our home or our children in our clinical practice to change the world. And what a great testament to your daughter that she changed the trajectory of your career and now has empowered you to give all of this information to all of us. So kudos and shout out to her. I think that's really special that she's such a big part of your journey. She is. She most definitely is. And I can recall looking back, my daughter was uh, quite strong in academics. She's 20 now. Um, she actually graduated as valedictorian, but to-, to Congratulations. Speak, well, thank you. Um, to speak to her, I, re I remember her actually creating posters and taking them to school. This, this was not an assignment that was given to her. This was something that she wanted to do. Um, and she would create those and take them to school and, and provide sort of little mini education sessions about cyberbullying. And the teachers had just spoken up and said that, that it was just kind of inspiring that she was willing to share what she knew um, and, and hopefully what she was learning from me um, about those behaviors. Well, Mel, it seems we have a similar life path. My oldest daughter is also, uh, she's valedictorian. She's graduating this year. Wonderful. And she played a really important role in me getting interested in this as well, because when she was in the fifth grade, she came to me one day and she asked me for an Instagram account. You know, at that time, that was the thing. Then it, you know, of course became Snapchat and now TikTok. And I'm sure that something new, you know, will come along behind that. But she wanted Instagram. And she told me what every child has told their mother in the history of ever is that everybody's doing it. And I said what every mother has said in the history of ever and said, no, not everyone is doing it. And so we sat down and looked and sure enough, as we went through her class roster, every kid in her class was on Instagram. And I'm looking at this, you know, not knowing very much about Instagram at all at the time and seeing, you know, status in a relationship and things like that. And I'm thinking, these are fifth graders, you know, I couldn't believe it. So I reverted to the second best mom line ever, which is well, if everyone was going to jump off a bridge, would you do it? <laughs> and, you know, through, through a series of events, um, I, you know, I really started looking into this to see, is this okay? Or is this not? And encountered another mom, which maybe we'll tell that story later or on another episode. But anyway, what ended up happening is I came back to my daughter and I said, no, you know, you're too young for this. And 
she um, came back to me a, a few years later and was like, okay, I'm ready. You know, I think I'm mature now. You've taught me about this and I want to do it. So I did what any academic mom would do. And I assigned her to write a paper. I said, you have to write me a paper. I gave her a rubric, you know, a page length and everything that she had to cover. So she worked on this paper for a couple of weeks and, and came back to me, it was typed, it had references. I was so proud of myself. She went through all of the risk and benefits. And at the end, it really stunned me because she said her conclusion was after doing this research, I really don't think that I'm ready for social media. <laughs> and I thought, well, I did not see that twist coming, but of course, you know, now she's 17 and a very responsible social media user, but, you know, Mel, as a mom, as a parent now in 2021, it is hard because we're trying to navigate all of these things. We have no idea what they are, and we're about to get into all of that. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about, give us an overview about the digital world and how, what, what our kids are facing? Well, I think it's, it's, hard for us as adults, um, especially who were not at such a young age exposed to the availability of the internet and, and of course, social media. And, and I, I really can't stress how hard it is for us to truly understand the role that social media plays in the lives of young people. Um, it's really easy for us to say, just turn it off. Or uh, you had mentioned talking to your daughter about whether or not she was ready to be on social media. And, and, and that's a, a challenge that I face with my daughter. Also, I actually did not allow her to be on um, Snapchat uh, for a very long time um, because we had I had some specific concerns about Snapchat. But I think it's really hard for us to understand how they view their connectivity to their friends and, and even to strangers, to the community at large, to people that they don't know and being able to make those connections. And those, the number of likes that they get is very important to them. Um, we as adults may say, we don't understand that. Why is this important to you? Why are you concerned with how many people like a picture? Um, but it really does play a role in their mentality, it plays a role in their self-esteem and how they feel about themselves. And they spend such a significant amount of time online. And, you know, to be honest, I know it's easy for us to say that they really spend so much more time than we do, but I'm not sure that that is necessarily the case either. Um, some of the more recent work that I've done directly intervention studies with um, young people is that they're saying, you know, they're hearing from their parents, you need to get off your phone, you need to stop playing games, you need to go outside and do something. And they will say, but my mom and dad are doing the exact same things. Um, so they may view it differently as far as what it means for them socially, what it means for them to be able to connect, to be able to express themselves. But as far as being online, I think we're seeing that a lot of adults are doing that too. Um, I know there were some there was some research published in 2019 that indicated that in in the U.S., 90% of adults are online, and we have to consider that those numbers also include much much older adults um, who are getting online most of them to keep up with what's going on in the world or to keep up with their family members. That seems to be a, a really easy way to do that. But we are on there as well. And I think it's important for us to be able to role model really good behavior for them online. And it's important for us to be able to understand 
exactly what it is that they are experiencing. And I think by understanding how it's impacting them, how it's influencing their self-esteem, their confidence, their connectivity, we can best guide them. I really like that you had your daughter do an assignment and, and to dig a little bit deeper in it. And I think that when you talk to them, if you talk to them about this, that they're going to come to some of their those conclusions on their own. You are so right. And you know, my youngest son, when he was uh, about nine, he's, he's 11 now, uh, he and I were talking about Fortnite and how um, so many of his friends were playing Fortnite. And he was frustrated because some of the uh, boys that he usually plays outside with, you know, wouldn't come outside because they wanted to play Fortnite. So we had this long discussion about, you know, the time spent on electronic devices. And I felt like, oh, I'm, you know, just killing it here as a mom right now. I'm having this great conversation with my son talking about Fortnite and, you know, how to you know, successfully navigate and plan your time. And he sat there and he listened to everything. And at the end he said, well, you know, mom, he said, really, Facebook is just Fortnite for adults, isn't it? And it just hit me in the gut. And I thought, yes, son, you are <laughs> Right. You know, wow, that was so convicting. But I think you make a really important point, Mel, because, you know, as as parents, we use our experience to help navigate risk for our kids. So we know we know how to drive. So when we're teaching our teens how to drive, we know to tell them what to look out for or when they're riding their bike in the street. But if you're not online and looking at that, then you don't know. And you talked in your article about students and children kind of being reticent to talk about risks or things that they've encountered online because they're really afraid that their access is going to get cut off, you know, that the parents won't understand or that they, you know, won't trust them or that they'll say you can't be on that app anymore, be on that game anymore. So how, how do you navigate that? I think one key is to remember, it, it does sound like you have an open, really good open communication with your children, which I think is wonderful and I think is really important. Um, I think it's important to remember that they are going to find a way to be online regardless of if we are allowing them to. One of the, the comments that I get a lot when I'm getting consent signed for some of my work with children I, I've even had it written directly on a consent that they were going to give permission, but that they know how to solve the problem that I'm researching, and that is to just not allow them to be on social media. Uh, and I find that interesting. I've heard that so many times is that they're going to find a way to be online regardless. Um, they will get on their friends' phones. They will um, get access it, you know, from library computers, any computer that doesn't fully restrict all of these social media sites, they have accounts. Uh, we just may not be aware of what they are. I'm so glad you brought up that point because it is so true. And I see that very often in my practice as well. You know, parents saying, oh, well, my child doesn't have social media or my child doesn't have access to a phone. But we have to remember that teens who have phones and have social media think that you know, not having a phone and not having social media is cruel and unusual punishment, you know, so they will give them an old phone or like you said, they'll have access, you know, where they can create an account online. And it's not so much, you know, that they're trying to be, you know, sneaky or bad. It's just, they really think in their minds, you know, you just don't understand. And so I think yeah, the question that follows that a lot of times is how do you 
get, uh, you know, monitoring software and, you know, those kinds of things, which those are all important tools to use, you know, checking your child's phone manually or using uh, software that helps monitor. Those are all important tools, but nothing is going to replace the relationship factor. You know, having, like you said, that open communication, that open dialogue, having them know that your kids know that they can come to you. And our first reaction can't be, oh my gosh, why did you do this? How could you be so stupid? What were you thinking? You know, that's, that's not the time for that. You know, a lot of times when they're coming to you and disclosing something, they've already experienced something traumatic. And the most important thing I think that we can say in that moment is, I'm sorry you've had this experience. I'm sorry this has happened to you. And yes, there may be restrictions or consequences, but we're about to talk about some traumatic things that can happen online to kids. So what, what do, you, do you have anything to add to that, Mel? Um, well, I, I, I cannot agree enough. I'm not a psychologist or have a heavy background in psychology, but that rapport with them, the being able to communicate with them. And, and of course, as parents, we have a responsibility to direct them and guide them to appropriate behaviors. But as you mentioned, scolding them or kind of overreacting to what they bring to us is really ineffective. And it's actually going to um, turn them away from telling us that these things are happening in the future. Uh, a lot of times parents will respond that way because we don't understand it. Uh, we don't understand again why it's such a big deal for them to feel liked and cared about by a bunch of strangers or by people who really don't have an interest in their lives. Um, but it's important for us to be able to understand what it is that they're going through to allow them to speak up about it. And they, they've actually told me in the past, many of them, that they just wanted to be heard. They wanted to be listened to. They didn't necessarily want anybody to intervene. They've used terms like it would be social suicide for me to tell my parents about this because I know what they're going to do. They're going to want to get involved. They're going to want to talk to somebody. They're going to want to report this and make it a big deal. And even though the, the, the child that's coming to you may consider it a big deal, a big enough deal that they're telling you about it, they may feel like it's only going to make things worse. And so they don't necessarily want intervention. They don't necessarily want action and want you to do anything. They just want you to listen. And so like you mentioned, that communication and that relationship with them really seems to be the most important factor in managing, I think, the majority of this. Well, that just really just gave me goosebumps, even just thinking about it and thinking about you know the, the power that we have as, as pediatric care providers and as parents to have influence right now. And especially now is such a challenging time. Uh, you know, as we as we look and everywhere you look in the newspaper and in the grocery store, as little socialization there is or in online forums, everybody's talking about how is this pandemic and all of these things that have happened in the last year going to impact children. But children are so remarkably resilient and we have the opportunity to raise perhaps the most resilient generation. And so as we start talking about some of these scary things, hang there with us, we're gonna walk you through it. Uh, I want you to remember that knowledge is power and that we're giving you this information to empower you to have discussions with your child so that they can be empowered and know what to do. So with that, let's go ahead and just jump right in and let's talk about the first thing you address in your article that you wrote for the Journal of Pediatric Healthcare, 
catfishing. Now I'm gonna guess that there's gonna be a lot of people out there who are not familiar with this and are immediately thinking of, you know, the fish with the long whiskers at the end of a pole maybe. Um, or you may think of, you know, some, there's been some celebrity instances of catfishing. What is catfishing Mel? Um, catfishing is actually using a fake online profile or persona, whether it's actually pretending to be a completely different person or primarily using that you that this is who you are, but it's a different persona or a different reason for what you're doing, using that that online profile or persona for a deceptive purpose. Generally, we see it in romantic relationships on on specifically online romantic relationships and dating sites, but it's actually been noted um, in a lot of other situations as far as blackmailing um, to set someone up for robbery by setting up a meeting um, or simply just to manipulate someone's feelings. Well, it's so sad. And, you know, the, the case of catfishing that I always think about is actually a, um, a, a lady that spoke at one of our NAPNAP conferences, a mom actually, who shared the experience of her daughter who at 12 experienced some online electronic aggression and uh, she was uh, bullied and and called fat even though she was you know she was not because that's what happens right with bullying a lot of times those things are just lies or magnifications of, of perceptions of insecurities and her parents actually moved her to a different school but she kind of kept an online presence with a a boy that she didn't know but that who had expressed outrage over what she had experienced and her parents were monitoring the situation, but as time went on, um, the relationship changed and started to be more hostile. He was more hostile and more aggressive. And, and at the end uh, of the relationship, tragically, he told her basically that the, the world would be better off without her. And at 12 years old, she hung herself in her closet while her mother was downstairs. And her mother has just done amazing work and advocating for legislation governing you know, these things. And and because there really was nothing at the time. But what they found out was that that boy didn't really exist. He was the girls and the mothers of the girls that had been bullying her that created a fake persona for the purposes of, of uh, really you know, humiliating her. And that was such a, a tragic story. And really actually what led me to um, talk to my daughter about uh, social media and thinking, okay, no, this cannot happen. We have to know more about this. So what would you, what would you do if, um, if you find out that this, this is happening. Um, I, you know, I think that that is kind of a time when it would be necessary for you to really have good conversations um, with your kids. I think it would be then important in those situations, especially if you think that they are in fact being catfished, that you you dig a little deeper. Um, it, it may, re this is the type of situation that can be punished um, criminally. Uh, one of the few of electronic aggression that actually can be um, associated with legal implications, including fraud. And so it, you may need to pull law enforcement into this type of situation, depending on what's happening. This may be a case where you would want to disconnect them from whatever that partic particular account is. Um, but I think if you have you've dug into it enough that you know that it's fake and that you're able to then present that to the child and, and show what you have found factually, it's going to give you a little more strength in disconnecting them from that 
particular situation. And pediatric care providers, we all know that you know, kids do not have this age, do not have abstract thinking yet. Your brain doesn't complete development until age 21. And so when they're susceptible to deception, so when somebody says, I'm, you know, a 14-year-old boy from a neighboring school, they think, oh, you're a 14-year-old boy from a neighboring school. And so we have to remember that their brains aren't, you know, thinking abstractly yet to thinking, well, what if, or they don't have that cynicism yet, which can be difficult. And so let's talk about the next thing that's on your list. Let's move on to cyberbullying, which you have a lot of interesting things to say about the definition for cyberbullying. It turns out, it seems like it's a term that we use pretty loosely, but it's not really that, that simple, is it? No, it's not. And, and cyberbullying is probably the term that you hear most often. As far as all of these behaviors go, you'll hear someone say, well, I'm being cyberbullying or they were cyberbullied when it may be one of these different behaviors that's actually occurring. Of course, they all fall under the term of electronic aggression, cyberbullying as well. But they're just like with bullying, traditional face-to-face -face bullying, there's some specific criteria that really are necessary for it to be termed as cyberbullying. And so understanding that definition and, you know, as a parent or as a healthcare provider that wants to address this, we have to make sure that we are identifying it for what in fact that it is. And so one, one negative posted comment online does not constitute cyberbullying. For a long time, cyberbullying was not universally defined, which made it very difficult in the literature to distinguish exactly what was being measured uh, in the various studies. It also made it difficult to really understand what the significance um, and what the incidence of cyberbullying was because the definitions were varying. More recently, I think we've gotten stronger definitions of what it means. Um, unfortunately, you know, some of the bigger organizations um, that we hear reporting about these things are still using kind of basic definitions such as it's just bullying that occurs um, electronically or digitally, and that's not exactly the case. And so uh, there was a study in around 2008 um, where cyberbullying really started to be defined as something that was aggressive, it was intentional, that it was willful, that it was something that had happened repeatedly or had the potential to be spread repeatedly, as in shares, people liking it, even though someone might not be commenting the same things repeatedly when, when someone posts a negative comment and you have you know 300 likes or shares, um, that also is making it repeatable. Um, that it is of, of course harmful and that it's that it's occurring across some type of electronic device. And, and for kids, they a lot of times will consider that just via social media, but there have actually been cases where people have left cyberbullying voicemails or sent cyberbullying type emails. Um, so it can actually occur across a variety of electronic platforms. But I think the key there is that it is willful, repeated, or has the potential to be repeated, shared, liked, that it's harmful, and that it occurs across electronic devices. And I think that the harmfulness of it is really the, the piece that stands out to me because through my conversations with young people 
who have experienced it and some who claim that they have not experienced it, even though I could explore friends of my daughter's, their social media accounts and see that this has in fact happened to them. The way that they perceive it is uh, is a bigger element, I think. Um, in some areas, it has become so normalized with them to receive these types of comments that they may say, no, no, I've never been cyberbullying almost to the point where if it's not severely impacting them emotionally, that they don't even really consider it to be cyberbullying. So I think that says something about when they do come to us, it's probably gotten pretty severe or they wouldn't be bringing it to us in the first place. Wow, that's pretty sobering. And so, you know, to reiterate what you said is willful, repeated, harmful, and occurring across electronic devices. And one of the things that you mentioned in your article is the Cyberbullying Research Center, which I have found to be a tremendous resource. It's just cyberbullying.org. And there's lots of resources for, uh, for parents and for students on there as well um, that will help you, you know, especially because you talked about now, one of the things you talked about was the intersectionality of, of criminality, you know, with this. Sometimes this is criminal behavior and parents, you know, start to get really scared when you talk about involving law enforcement and lawyers and things like that. But that may be something that's appropriate um, for, for certain situations. Absolutely. You know, if, if you I, I've gotten cases from young people that I've talked to about even having Facebook accounts set up. Uh, one individual indicated to me that there was a Facebook set up. It, it had her her name in it, and we'll just say, um, you know, AA uh, as her initials, for example. And the site was set up as Kill AA, um, and it was solely dedicated. That that Facebook page was solely dedicated um, to verbally um, and, of course, digitally attacking uh, an individual and we can of course report those. Most social media sites have ways now to report those behaviors, to block things. Um, as far as the child blocking them, they can certainly do that and that's not difficult to do. But as they will also tell you, as you deleted those things, they also will pop up again. Um, they may pop up on a different account. It may be, they may rename a page or change something um, and, and those things really never go away because if the person really want the perpetrator really wants to keep doing those things they're going to find other ways to do them um, and absolutely in those cases where you've reported it and maybe the social media site has taken those things down but they keep happening that would be the case in which you could probably then push for some type of harassment um, and and criminality then associated with that and the flip side of that is talking to your kids about, you know, sometimes kids have poor judgment and they do things without recognizing the consequences. And so making sure you talk to them about the criminal implications, should your kid do that? I mean, if there's victims out there who are experiencing this, there's obviously perpetrators too, which is a, a whole nother topic, but that's important to, to talk about, you know, either way, because I think, you know, I'm a Gen Xer and I think, uh, you know, this, my generation would call this like a slam book or something like that, you know, but now with uh, electronic media, things are permanent. We have a permanent digital footprint and there are you know, more laws now that are governing this. And this is something you know, that's really important, which leads us kind of to our next topic, which is flaming and thinking about what people say online 
that they maybe wouldn't even say in person, but somehow, you know, having the cover of an online persona. So what is flaming? I'm sure that there's people out there thinking all kinds of things, if you maybe haven't heard this term before. And so why don't you give us some clarity on what we mean in this context? Um, well, flaming is actually just kind of broadly defined as heated online communication um, that is negative, involves um, insults, uh, negative affect, could involve emojis, um, the use of GIFs, any type of media that is going to cause a negative response. Um, unfortunately, with adults, we see flaming quite often, uh, political flaming especially, and I think we, we saw that significantly um, in the, the last uh, presidential election. Um, it, it's something that politically is centered on communication on politics and, and is really common among adults and um, with news media reporters. Uh, it, the kind of the key with flaming and is that it involves a, a direct interaction with internet users. Um, it shows a purposeful violation of social norms and a a negative perception has to be negatively received um, by the individual on the other end. Um, and one of the quotes that in the research of the literature found was um, in 2003, a couple of researchers kind of described it as a metaphorical flamethrower that the sender uses to roast the receiver verbally. And it's really Identify, it was identified as a computer-based phenomenon in 1984, so quite some time ago before the general public really had access to social media. Um, they attribute it to increased anonymity and a lack of immediate consequences. And so I think we have a misunderstanding that there are actual social cues and social expectations in the digital world it's not viewed the same as it is in, in person and in face-to-face -face communications. And, and so we're more apt to say things online with not necessarily the shield of invisibility because a lot of times these comments are coming from people with a very, very obvious profile of who they are um, and definitely not anonymous in any way. But I think that sometimes people think that because they can't, it's not something they would normally say in person, but it's okay to type it because they didn't actually say it. Um, they typed it. And so the, the disinhibition of being online and not seeing someone's immediate reaction, I think really plays a role with, with flaming. That's a really interesting point, thinking about not seeing their immediate reaction and not being able to respond to that social cue. I haven't thought about it in quite that way, but you're right. You just kind of send this comment off into the void. And then, you know, what do teens do a lot of times when they roast each other? They high five each other. They congratulate each other. They say, whoa, that was a good one, you know, and it's kind of, you know, socially encouraged. And so I can see how that would happen. Now you give a uh, kind of a, a, an example of the dialogue in this article that you wrote, you know, just talking about like a back and forth between um, a, a somebody, that, a girl that's playing basketball and somebody that's saying, 
no, you know, that's not there. And so I want to read a little bit of what you said on there and some of that dialogue. You, you said um, that it's, it's fanatic 2004 would be the username. Get over yourself, fan girl fan 08. You have no idea what you're talking about. It's one game. Besides, no real fan cares about what some girl has to say about sports. Go play with your Barbies or something. At which the response is, who asked you anyway? That was five seconds reading a worthless opinion from some stupid girl that I can't get back. Girl fan 08 responds, I watch every game. Why does it matter if I'm a girl? I can like sports too. And which fanatic 2004 says, we really don't care what you have to say, girl. Everyone knows boys know more about sports than girls. Girls plus sports equals no. You're just some lame teeny bopper who thinks she knows sports because she watches a game every now and then. Hashtag get a life loser. So, you know, what do you say to parents and to caregivers who, you know, like you talked about earlier, kind of normalize this behavior and think this is just how you talk online? How do you open that conversation? Well, I think one of the things that we're seeing in education, thankfully, is sort of a focus on socio-emotional learning um, and, and the importance of schools uh, and, and definitely parents and families as well, but schools in not only focusing on the education that they're provided, but also tying in the social and emotional aspects of that and being able to teach children what they need to know um, about appropriate behaviors, um, skills, and attitudes to be able to communicate uh, appropriately online, and also to understand that just because somebody says something doesn't mean that it's true and doesn't mean that it matters or that it's important. And also that, do we need to respond to it? Is that only something that's going to fuel the flaming and allow it to get worse? And I think with the, with the case that you read that we provided, there, there were multiple comments from on, based on this, this girl's original posting um, that, and, and so they, it kind of fuels, they feed off of each other. And her responding just garnered a, a bigger, even worse negative response and, and being able to, to teach them that that's most likely what's going to happen. This person is just trying to get a response from you. These are the types of postings you need to either ignore or you need to block that person or delete those messages because it's just going to kind of fuel the fire. I agree with that so much. I've experienced more than my fair share of flaming. And although I'm not a teenager, I have experienced that. And I said, you know, it's just the new stop, drop and roll. It's delete, block and walk away. That's what I'm going to do. Absolutely. But you know, one thing that you can't walk away from is our next topic is outing and trickery. And these are a little bit confusing, you know, they overlap just, it seems just a little bit. What, what is outing and trickery online, Mel? Outing and trickery go hand in hand um, in that outing is sort of the first piece of it. And this is sharing someone's secrets or embarrassing information or images or videos that you may have of them. That behavior is generally obtained secretively, not always, but generally secretively. So if someone, you know, whips out their camera when they see someone who's maybe intoxicated walking down the street, maybe they think that it's funny, the behaviors, um, and they record them without that person's knowledge because the person's intoxicated or, you know, maybe they're getting them from a different angle. And then they share those things online. And that would be an example of outing. 
trickery is very similar, but in the case that they trick, the perpetrator is going to trick someone into revealing their own secrets or embarrassing information. And that may come from having a private conversation with someone and then the individual sharing what they have learned um, with others, which was not the intention for it to be revealed to anyone else. Um, or to, if you have young people, which unfortunately is something that we're seeing an increasing problem with, um, sexting and sharing um, what the, the kids would call, quote, their nudes, um, even if it's not a, you know, full nude picture, any type of sexually inappropriate picture um, that the kids are sharing, and they may share it with a boyfriend or girlfriend, and then it is then shared with others um, inappropriately, maybe through the whole school, or it's posted on social media then, and that one would be specifically called trickery, because the person actually revealed the information themselves, it was just then shared um, in an appropriate manner and, and for a negative reason. Well, in the case that you referred to in the outing in your article is Tyler Clementi. Can you tell us about that? Um, Tyler Clementi was a Rutgers University student, um, very strong academic, and uh, I think I believe he played a musical instrument as well. He was he was a, an incredible young person um, who, upon being a student at Rutgers University was at, was a gay male who was at the time uh, still closeted to the larger community. I think maybe some close friends and family were aware, um, but Tyler was actually filmed unknowingly in an intimate act with another man in his dorm room. And the perpetrator was his roommate um, who shared the images that he obtained from a hidden camera. Uh, on the internet and actually encouraged other people, I believe it was on Twitter, um, to watch in and to, uh, there was more than one episode, I guess, so to speak, and how the, the roommate was sharing this and encouraged people to watch um, as Tyler, uh, again, just was not comfortable sharing his sexuality, sexuality openly at that point more just with close family and friends, he really just took it as something that he could just not overcome. Um, he had really felt like he was humiliated and become a topic of ridicule um, in his new environment at Rutgers. And um, he took his own life just a few days later after learning that it had been shared. And you know, so many of these stories end like that, the Megan Meyer that I shared about earlier. And I think that's why it's so important to to act early. And, you know, the next thing that's on the list is another thing that, that tragic ends tragically uh, far too often, and that is cyber stalking. And this is, a, this is a really scary thing, Mel. How do teens experience cyber stalking? Um, well, cyber stalking is, of course, very similar to traditional stalking in person, but it's the repeated pursuit of an individual using internet capable devices. And so again, just like with cyberbullying, there are three key components that must be present and that's repeated threats or harassment that occur at least twice. Um, it occurs via electronic or computer-based communication and that it results in fear or concerns for one's safety. And so online stalkers can be quite persistent, um, more so than traditional because it can cross barriers of time and space. It can be happening all the time very persistently. They can regularly, they could even set up while they're sleeping for messages to be sent 
to that individual electronically. Um, they are intimidating and threatening and, and very often, as we also see with traditional stalking, is they're sexual in nature. Um, unfortunately, we also see cyber stalking happening within romantic relationships. Uh, we may see this with adults, um, even in domestic relationships where the couple is married. But we see this with young people a lot. Um, unfortunately, I have personal experience with adolescent dating violence. And as part of my PhD program, uh, participated in sort of a research practicum with some expert researchers who were doing dating violence, a, a very large study on dating violence. And we are seeing these cyber stalking behaviors that are occurring as a type of dating abuse, as a type of dating violence. And in, in some fields, cyber stalking can be considered cyber dating abuse, but we have to keep in mind that the individuals involved in this are not always dating. So we can't just term it cyber dating abuse. But you may see a current romantic partner who is controlling, who is who wants to know the whereabouts of their partner um, and require them to have a location tracker on, require them to let them know where they are. And again, they can track their location. Um, it makes it very easy to keep someone on, on what you might hear termed a, an electronic leash. Uh, so it's, it's not necessarily just with strangers, though it very um, often is just like traditional stalking would be. Um, but we also unfortunately are seeing it in dating relationships. And because young people are so connected, I think many of them are, are seeing this as a norm, that it's normal for my partner to want to know where I am every second of the day and want to have location tracking on. Um, and this was something that my daughter experienced, that she had a, a partner at the time who who wanted to know where she was all the time. And, and her response, thankfully, was, um, you know, my parents need to know where I am all the time. You do not. Um, and so she was able to have a clear understanding of that and was able to set boundaries. But um, as you mentioned, with our young people and they're growing and they're still learning how to think um, and still trying to determine what is appropriate and what is not um, and, and kind of what their identities are as a whole, um, that they don't always see this as being problematic. Well, Mel, I so appreciate your vulnerability and transparency and sharing your personal experience because one thing that I see as I talk to parents about this all across the country is the kind of, it wouldn't happen to me phenomenon, you know, like, yeah, that wouldn't happen to my kid, you know, but every parent that I talk with who has experienced some sort of cyber stalking or other form of electronic aggression, they say that's what they thought, like this would never happen to their kid. And so um, I appreciate you sharing that because here you are, you know, highly accomplished and a pediatric nurse practitioner, and this happened in your family. And we've had experiences in our family as well. This is something that every kid, every teen is vulnerable to and at risk for. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I, I just don't think that they always recognize it as that's what it is. Um, and I've seen this happen, you know, not only with myself, not only on a smaller scale, thankfully with my daughter, she was able to, to stop that before it really got too involved. Um, but even with, with some of her friends and, and some children who I, you know, at the time were children who I know personally, and, I, and I've had to indicate, you know, to them, 
this is something that you need to recognize as being a problem and put boundaries in place. And this is something that as a parent um, who is aware of this, I am going to have to share this with your parents and let them know that this is happening so that they can intervene also. That's really good advice. And we've come to our last form of electronic aggression, trolling. Now you're probably thinking about if you have younger kids, maybe frozen and the trolls that are in frozen, that's not what we're talking about here. Well, that is actually where the, the term come from uh, is that it is sort of considered an ugly appearance that manifests itself um, as a really negative and undesirable presence online. But in today's society, it refers to a person who posts intentionally provocative messages and sometimes even completely off topic messages with the intention of provoking others um, into displaying emotional responses or kind of just breaking up the discussion process altogether. Um, there are some studies out there that really claim that there's not even now a universal definition to support trolling as always being negative. And that's something that's interesting about trolling is that in some environments, it's almost become a game. And I, and I say this because we mentioned this in our model case that it can be humorous. It can be a humorous way, you know, to include sarcasm or to just kind of tease, I guess. We see it a lot with um, business, business accounts that are on Twitter. Uh, you know, I always mention, and I don't mean this negatively, but uh, Wendy's has an, an amazing Twitter account. Um, I, I'm sure that it is young people that are running that account um, that they will kind of tease um, other, other companies, especially their rivals, um, with just some really humorous um, comments. And, and that's a case where trolling is really not viewed negatively, but that's still what it's called. It's still called trolling because they're responding when no one is really calling them out or asking for their opinion. Um, <laughs> they're, they're responding to that, which I think you can see in the, in the model case uh, in the manuscript, but it very often can be considered abusive behavior. And um, there are some studies that have asked uh, qualitatively for, for terms to describe how cyber, um, or I'm sorry, how trolling is viewed. And you'll hear words such as provoke, um, that it's deliberate, that they're looking for a reaction, that they're getting people upset. We see it a lot with celebrities. Um, I'm, I, I'm not sure why individuals just in general, young people or, or even adults, feel like celebrities um, should be able to tolerate trolling, that, that this is what they signed up for, that they should be able to deal with this because they're, they're human beings just like everybody else is, especially your younger celebrities who are in fact children. Um, and so I included a quote in the manuscript that was from Selena Gomez, who is beautiful and extremely talented and just really discussed how the trolling impacts people's self-esteem, um, including hers. And, and she had said, they don't simply th say things like you're ugly. Um, and she specifically stated, it's like they want to cut to your soul. Mm -hmm. um, and that really resonated in me, um, mm -hmm. how, how those types of behaviors were making her feel. 
I completely agree. And then you, the quote that you put went on to say, imagine all the insecurities that you already feel about yourself and having someone write a paragraph pointing out every little thing, even if it's just physical. And if this is somebody that our teens esteem and think highly of and think is beautiful and talented and has it all, how much more so are they are our regular teens who are not celebrities or TikTok breakout stars or things like that going to have difficulty in, uh, in, in, in responding to this. Now, you said something in here that really caught my eye. You said, you talked about the dark triad. Now that is a pretty compelling phrase. Will you tell us about the dark triad and how it's associated with trolling? Well, the dark um, triad is uh, used generally in psychology. And this is looking at three elements, um, including narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. And this is where you're looking at callous and manipulative behavior. Um, and really, I think the quote um, that I included in there from Buckles uh, in 2014 was that cyber trolling appears to be an internet manifestation of everyday sadism. Mm -hmm. And so in the, in the account that it's trolling is used negatively, unlike I mentioned some of the business accounts who use it for humor. Um, it, it is with an intent to truly hurt somebody and it is to provoke and manipulate a behavior out of them. And so trolling is definitely evidenced by toxic and hostile behaviors. And it's really most often perpetrated for amusement, um, whether it be in the case of some of the businesses as humor amusement, other times, it's just to get a response out of someone and just can be really devastating. Well, and one of the, um, the model cases that you put in here was from J.K. Rowling, of course, the author of the Harry Potter series for a clapback. And, uh, and you said an anonymous user told her, caught this article on Yahoo, I will now burn your books and movies too, to which she clapped back. Well, the fumes from the DVDs might be toxic and I've still got your money. So by all means, borrow my lighter. And I think, you know, that's a really good example of, you know, that that's, that's really tough. Uh, but at the same time, you know, how do you respond back? And there's a lot in the literature now emerging about effective responses to that, which leads us to our wrap up because we're in our last few minutes here. And if you're a regular listener of Team Pete's Talks, you know, we usually only go for half an hour, but this has been such a good discussion. I hope you have enjoyed this bonus half hour here as we have talked about it. And you know, Mel, I think some parents out there, pediatric caregivers might be scared to death now thinking, oh my gosh, you know, this is scary. This is awful. How, where do you even start? What are some practical tips that we can give our listeners out there to, uh, to, to even, where do you start? Well, I think the, the first piece was really what we were trying to do with the manuscript. And, and I wrote this manuscript with a non-nursing student um, who was a graduate student that this worked within the School of Nursing um, with a completely different focus as far as major wise. And the goal of the article was to get the knowledge out there of what these terms are, what they mean. If you hear your child saying these things, if um, as a provider, you are trying to have a discussion, you need to understand what these terms are. Even something as simple as uh, we mentioned a clap back um, coming from celebrities and, and kind of hitting someone back with a comment regarding something negative that they said, um, understanding that they're going to give us terminology that we don't understand. And in order to have 
a, a thorough discussion with them and for them not to just think, you know, parents just don't understand or adults just don't understand. We have to understand that terminology. And that's really what we wanted to do with the article. Um, I think that we wrote it in a way that it's definitely beneficial for providers, but I think with through the model cases, we were able to make it also helpful for um, any adult, any parent, any caregiver, anyone that's working with adolescents to understand what this terminology means. Um, I think healthcare providers, especially those who are in school, um, are in schools and then in mental health practices, counselors are really in a key position to recognize behaviors that we might see that may be related to experiences with electronic aggression, just as you would expect that we would be able to identi uh, identify other situations that may be occurring. And one of the interesting things, um, I work in an emergency room, and so it's frequent practice, it's common practice and standard to ask patients, do you feel safe at home? And one of the things that I uh, would like to start including is why are we not asking kids, do they feel safe online? Um, we may get a response from them. Yes, I feel safe at home. Yes, I feel safe with my parents. No, nobody hurts me. Then we say, do you feel safe at home? And I've asked this question a couple times um, with my patients, just because I, I felt like with those particular children that it may be an issue. Um, I think something that I was just seeing and uh, one response that I got, you know, I did get, yes, I'm safe at home. Yes, my, my parents are supportive. And I said, do you feel safe online? Do you, do you feel safe when you log in? And the response was, it's always drama online. Mm -hmm. And so I think you can have these discussions with them. If you understand the terminology, you understand what they're telling you, that you understand how social media and being online and being connected in that way is important to them, that it is very important to them. And really regardless of adults or healthcare providers, whether we feel that it should be, it is. Um, and that's their reality and they're living it. And in order to help them, we have to understand it. I think that is a great way to end this program. What a great question for all of you parents and caregivers out there, pediatric nurse practitioners. Do you feel safe online? That's a great way to open this conversation. We have been talking to Dr. Melvino Brandall about electronic aggression. If you are a member of the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, if you're a member of NAPNAP, uh, as an expert in pediatric and advocate for children, this, uh, this article is available to you for free online. If you go to napnap.org and click on the header PCE, you can get a free one hour continuing education certificate by taking the simple 10 question uh, quiz. Just read the article and you can fill in all the information that we didn't cover in this podcast. That's there. If you're not a member of NAPNAP and you're a pediatric focused healthcare provider, we would love to have you as a member. If you're a parent looking for this article, you can find it at the Journal of Pediatric Healthcare. And again, the title is Caring for the Digital Generation understanding electronic aggression. Mel, thank you so much for this incredible conversation. I really wish that we could be a fly on the wall in all of the homes and clinical practices across the country who are gonna take this information and use it. And I just get, wanna give one last shout out to your daughter for playing such an important part of your journey and how many people that she's impacted. Thanks so much for joining us on Team Peace Talks. 
thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed being able to talk about the article and talk about the issue with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Team Peds Talks, brought to you by the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, experts in pediatrics, and advocates for children. Please join us again next time, and thank you for listening.